All right, you see it on the screen up here, but turn to Luke chapter 14 and your New Testament. Luke chapter 14, we've been in this sermon series going through the middle section of the Gospel of Luke, the journey to Jerusalem section. And uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 1 through 24 is our main text today. Uh, so during the Christmas break, when our kids were out of school for a couple of weeks, uh, one of the nights when we were home together, we decided that we would go out to eat and then drive around Longview and look at Christmas lights. We stopped at a restaurant, we got our food, we sat down at the table, and my daughter Addie had with her these conversation starter cards, which were great. Uh, we would just flip from one card to the next, and we would all four go around and try to answer these questions, questions like, when's the last time you laughed so hard you couldn't stop? Or when's the last time that you had to be brave? Those were just a sampling of some of the questions that were asked, and we loved it. We had a great time. We shared stories together. I heard things about my kids' life that I didn't even know were, were going on as they shared their own stories, and we got to see their imagination, and it dominated the entire mealtime conversation. We loved that night. As we're getting ready to go, to go look at Christmas lights, my family went out to the car and I did what I normally do. I stopped for a restroom break. I wanted to make sure uh, that I was good to go to drive around for a few hours and look at Christmas lights. Well, on my way out, the guy that had been sitting at the table beside us stopped me and he said, sir, I just want to compliment your family. He said, it brought a lot of joy to my heart to see you guys as a family actually talking together and laughing together. And as you shared the meal, you were engaged with each other the whole time. And I said, well, wow, thank you for the compliment. But what I was really thinking was, if you would have just seen us last night, you probably would not be complimenting us. He caught us on a good night. But the truth is, what this guy was pointing out is that the table sitting down at the table for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, whatever it may be, and fellowshipping with others is such a powerful place. And you've all experienced it, I'm sure. Sitting down at the table with someone can be a place for casual conversation, for deep conversation, for relationship building, for getting to know your kids, for family building, for maybe even tough conversations. You know, the table can be such an important place when you sit down and you eat food and you're not distracted and you're looking at each other and you have these conversations. The table can be a powerful place. We live in a culture, though, where the table is not quite as important as it once was, and so a lot of times we opt to get our food and watch TV or get our food and, like the guy at the restaurant said, look at our phones, or sometimes we are just so busy we eat on the go. I'm guilty of that, as I'm sure we all are. But the text that we're looking at today and what we'll see a few different times in the Gospel of Luke is that the table and table fellowship is very important to Jesus' ministry. Jesus knew just how powerful the table really is. So let's just jump into this, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath... They were watching him closely. All right, let's pause on that for just a moment. Let me give you a little background. Table fellowship in the first century was crucial. We say things in our own culture like, you are what you eat. Have you ever said that or have somebody said that to you? We are what we eat. Well, in the first century, it was more like, you are who you eat with. 
If you chose to accept an invitation or to extend an invitation and sit down at the table with someone, that means you are identifying with that person. You are accepting that person. You associate with them. So that's important to understand the type of people that Jesus chose to share the table with. He was associating with them. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, there are a lot of mealtime stories. The table is important in Luke. One commentator said that Luke is obsessed with mealtime stories. It's at the table, starting from Luke chapter 5 all the way through Luke chapter 24, that Jesus welcomes and embraces people. He's inclusive. It's at the table that He heals people who are suffering. It's at the table that He forgives people who are sinners. And it's at the table that Jesus confronts some ungodly behaviors and toxic thinking and patterns of these religious leaders. So the table in the Gospel of Luke is a key component for how Luke presents to us the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. At least nine, some would argue for ten different times where Jesus is at the table. And it's his table habits. It's his table fellowship, who he chooses to eat with like tax collectors and sinners. And it's what he teaches when he's, <clears throat> when he's at the table with the religious leaders that eventually got him crucified. In the way that Luke presents the gospel, it's Jesus' table manners led to his death. So let's just walk through this in Luke chapter 14. And I want to show you how really awkward and tense and uncomfortable this meal setting was here in Luke 14. So he's at the home of a prominent Pharisee. He's at the table, Luke chapter 14 and verse 2. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. You may be asking, what is that? It's an abnormal swelling of a limb of the body, and it can be deadly. So this guy is suffering greatly. And he just happens to be at the table. I imagine the Pharisees invited this guy to place him in front of Jesus to see what Jesus would do. Verse 3, And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, If one of you has a child or an ox... It has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. So this dinner that Jesus is at just got very interesting. There's never been a dinner guest quite like Jesus before. Let's talk about the Sabbath day for just a moment. This is taking place on a Sabbath day. So we, just kind of a quick reminder, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day He rested and built into creation is a rhythm of work. We're supposed to work, but also rest. I'm a big proponent of taking a Sabbath rest from your work, from all your normal activities, one day each week. I think we need it. And in the first century, the Sabbath day was so important that the religious leaders had created a set of rules for what's considered work, because you're not supposed to work, and what's not work. So what's acceptable on Sabbath and what's not acceptable. But the problem with the religious leaders is they had become very legalistic about it. They had created their own traditions, and in their minds, the tradition trumped human life. So they would rather see this guy suffer than be healed on the Sabbath day. A few years ago, I came across a story 
took place at the Atlanta International Airport. There was a huge blackout, and all the flights were canceled. It was on a Sunday, and you have all of these people who were just stranded. They're left at the airport with no electricity, with no food, no water, just waiting to figure out what's going to happen. And then they received word that somebody was going to provide food for all of them, thousands of people in this airport. And guess who it was? Guess who came to the rescue? Chick-fil-A. Well, I love Chick-fil-A, so I'll promote them. But the, the thing about that is, is it was on a Sunday. And if you know anything about Chick-fil-A, they're closed on Sundays, which I respect. Even though sometimes on Sundays I want to go to Chick-fil-A, I respect the fact that they take a rest. They allow their employees to rest. They give their employees an opportunity to go and worship. So for a company that's normally closed on Sundays, apparently they have a little wiggle room. They're not legalistic about it. And when a crisis came up, and when there was a great human need, even on a, stu- a Sunday, they stepped up and they said, we'll help out. We'll provide for this need. And I kind of see that with Jesus in the Sabbath day uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, but especially here in, in chapter 14. Jesus honored the Sabbath day. He observed it. He did all the right things that you were supposed to do as a Jewish person in the first century. Jesus would go to synagogue and worship on the Sabbath day, However, Jesus wasn't so legalistic about it like the religious leaders that he would allow this guy to continue to suffer. So he uses this as a, not only an opportunity to heal someone, but to teach. The teaching method that Jesus uses is a method he's already used in the Gospels called the lesser to greater. And he's saying to these religious leaders, if you have a child or you have an animal that falls into a pit, even on the Sabbath day, you're going to help them out of the pit. How much more should we help this guy who is in the pit of illness and the pit of suffering and alleviate his pain and suffering? If you would allow it for your own animal and for your own child, why not allow it for this guy? Well, notice at the table, everybody's silent. Jesus is just a guest. I mean, he's a teacher, a great teacher, but he's not the host of the meal and he has silenced everybody and the tension in this meal story this table fellowship time is going to increase and we'll read now Luke chapter 14 verse 7 through 11 and just kind of notice the tension here when he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor he told them a parable remember Jesus doesn't hold any punches he is not afraid for confrontation when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet do not sit down at the place of honor In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And here's the crux of it. Here's the point of the parable, verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus tells this parable about the wedding feast, and and instead of choosing the better seats, because you might be embarrassed and, and ask to move to a lower seat, choose a lower seat, and then the host may ask you and invite you up. He's not giving a formula for how to be exalted in front of others. You could try this at the next wedding reception you go to, and it may or may not work. There is a deeper truth behind what Jesus is teaching. 
And we see that in verse 11. If you want to exalt yourself, if you want to be known, if you want to be somebody, you're probably going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Humility was not a virtue in the first century. In fact, humility did not become a positive virtue until after Jesus' influence on this earth. Uh, there, there's a guy, and I won't say his name, and I don't think any of you would know him, but he's been part of the Churches of Christ for a long time. In fact, he's very influential in a lot of churches. Uh, and I know him. He, he's done some good. You know, he's helped me and he's helped others. But every time I go to a Christian conference, whether it's Pepperdine, ACU, a preacher's conference, whatever it may be, he's always there. And there's always seems to be a time, whether it's at a mill or just in passing, where we run into each other and we start talking. But he always does this number right here. It's like he's talking to me, but he's also doing this. Like he's scanning the room to see who else is here. And I've noticed this. He's done this to me. He's done it to a few other friends of mine. It's like he's looking for somebody of greater importance. If he sees a preacher who's more well-known or at a bigger church, I promise you this has happened to me a few times. He has stopped in the middle of the conversation and just moved over here and started talking to this other guy. And I'm like, I was in mid-sentence and you just walked away. I mean, he's, maybe that's part of his personality, but it seems like he has this drive to just place himself around people that will make him look more important, almost to the point where I feel sorry for him. This deeper truth that Jesus is teaching here is, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But if you spend your whole life trying to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. What Jesus is presenting is what I would call an upside-down status, social status. About a month ago, I talked about this inversion table and being flipped upside down, and that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. That's what he's doing with the people here at the table. Is he's basically saying, you guys love to pick the better seats. You love to be noticed. You love impression management. And instead, you should choose humility. Okay. I have a former teacher that used to tell this story about a friend of his who wanted to make an impact in his city and his community for the kingdom of God. So one day he had this idea that he would go to a coffee shop and he sat outside the coffee shop and he made a sign that said, I will buy you a cup of coffee if you let me tell you my story about God. It's a busy coffee shop with a lot of traffic like you see in this picture. He sits out there all day and guess how many people took him up on his offer for a free cup of coffee? Zero. Not one person was willing to at least get a free cup of coffee and sit down and listen to this guy's presentation. Well, he was humbled by that a little bit. He thought he would have more than that. So he went home, he prayed about it, he thought about it, and he came back the next day and he changed the sign, and the sign said, I will buy you a cup of coffee if you will tell me your story about God. And guess how many people took him up on the offer that day? He had 17 people throughout the day that he bought a free cup of coffee for, and he sat down at a table, and they told him their faith history, their journey, their relationship with God, their understanding of God. And it humbled him because he realized, instead of doing all the talking, maybe he should do some listening. It was a humbling experience for him, but it made me think about Jesus with these Pharisees in Luke chapter 14. And maybe what Jesus was trying to steer them towards is if they would just do more listening 
and looking at people, seeing people like Jesus did, instead of doing all the talking and doing all the condemning and all the judging, how much more effective would they have been? Well, the tensions will just keep rising at this dinner to the point where it's, uh, it's palpable. It's uncomfortable for me, but I want to read verse 12 through 14. He also said to the one who had invited him, now he's talking to the self-seeking host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. If you place yourself at this dinner table, I promise you, that is uncomfortable. That's awkward. A guest did not normally inform their host who to invite. Not in the first century, not in the 21st century either. I can imagine going to someone's house or going to a banquet and saying, hey, I noticed who you invited. Here's who you should have invited. But leave it up to Jesus. There's never been a guest like Jesus before. What we see here is Jesus' love for outsiders. I've titled this sermon series, Outsider. And we just keep coming back to this theme that Jesus really has a special concern in the Gospel of Luke, especially for those who are often overlooked or ignored, the outsiders. And he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, you should invite the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. Those are people that would never normally be invited to a banquet like this, and they especially couldn't repay you. And I think if we want to take Jesus seriously, that this should cause some discomfort within us. Even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you ought to look at verses 12 through 14 and think, what does he really mean? How should this impact the way I live out my faith? And one question you might be asking is, is it really wrong to eat with friends or family members? I mean, he says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your brother, your sister, your relative, or your rich neighbors, because they can repay you. Well, my answer in short to that would be no. I don't think he's placing a ban on ever eating with family, friends, or neighbors, uh, because that's, the way most, that's, that's who most of us share the table with. But if you look at the next chapter, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And all three of those parables end with a dinner, a banquet, a celebration, a festival, and guess who's invited? Friends and neighbors and relatives, because they're, they're celebrating what was found that was once lost. So Jesus uses that like it's a good thing. Jesus ate with his disciples. I don't think he's saying you should never, ever eat again with your neighbors, your friends, your family members. But I also don't think that we should only eat with people that we're comfortable with at the exclusion of the people who are often overlooked and ignored. I had a friend when I was in college. Uh, he was big into hunting and he had a lot of meat and he decided to throw this huge barbecue. But he also offended some people because he had a very specific in invite list. And some of his friends were excluded. And so this guy told me later, he said, I only, first of all, his goal in throwing this barbecue 
was to get as many females there as possible. Young guy in his 20s, he's trying to find a girlfriend. And he said, so the guys that he invited were only guys that he knew that girls would want to be around. So his friends that were weird or socially awkward intentionally did not get invited. Now you may look at that and say, well, that's really shallow. And it is. At least he admits it, though. But I thought of that when I'm reading Luke 14 because I'm thinking, maybe subconsciously, that's how a lot of us live our social lives. We have a desire to impress people. We have a desire to look good or to maybe elevate our status. And sometimes we know, well, one of the ways to do that is to associate with people that make us look better. But Jesus' idea of a successful luncheon, dinner, banquet is to make sure that everyone's included. Including those outsiders, those people who are often ignored or excluded, and maybe even people that could never repay you. Maybe that's where our heart and our attitude should be aimed towards. I can't read Luke 14, verse 12 through 14 without thinking of this young lady that you see in the picture. Her name is Sarah Cummins. Uh, Several years ago, she was engaged to be married, and as they were getting closer to the wedding date and putting down deposits and making big plans, her relationship started to fall apart, and her and her fiancé decided this is probably just not meant to be which would have been a tough decision, but I respect that because it's better to make that decision before the wedding than to get married and have all kinds of problems. So they decided to call it off. But the problem was Sarah and her family had already put down a $30,000 deposit, non-refundable at the Ritz-Carlton in Indiana. Wedding's called off. What are you going to do? You've already paid for it. So she came up with this I believe it's probably a spirit-inspired idea. And in cooperation with the local shelter, she invited 200 people who at the time were experiencing homelessness to come be the honored guest at this banquet at the Ritz-Carlton. And this is a picture from that night. You have all these people who were struggling at that time just to get by, just to have a meal, or just to have a place to stay. And for one night, Well, they got to feel like the honored guest. And they could never repay her. But they were her guests that night. And and maybe this is kind of an image or a glimpse of what Jesus meant by what he says in verses 12 through 14. So I started this sermon by titling it, Who Gets a Seat at the Table? Well, according to Jesus, who should be invited? Who gets a seat at the table? Right after this, In Luke 14 and verse 15, some guy who's kind of aloof, I think, to the conversation just shouts out, Blessed is the one who gets to eat at the kingdom of God at that great banquet. So it prompts Jesus to tell another parable. We call it the parable of the great banquet. And basically what Jesus is saying in this parable in verses 16 through 24 is that everybody's invited, including the religious leaders, who he was really harsh on. They're invited. The outsiders are invited. And even the Gentiles. Everyone gets an invitation to this banquet, but what Jesus tells in this parable is not everybody accepts the invitation. There are groups of people who come up with all kinds of excuses. Some say, oh, sorry, I just got married. I can't make it anymore. Some say, oh, I just bought some oxen. I need to go check on them. Or I just bought some land. I need to go check on that. There's all kinds of excuses that keep coming up. But if God in this parable, which 
is what the deeper meaning is, is he wants his banquet halls to be filled. And he says, go out into the alleys, into the streets, and invite the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the crippled. Bring them in. There's still room. Okay, go out to the highways and the byways and invite more, which probably represents the Gentiles. But those people who made excuses and said no to the invitation, they're not going to be able to find their way back in. So we're all invited to this great banquet. And I think we get a glimpse of this great banquet in the book of Revelation. And so I'll end by reading something from Revelation chapter 19. I want to read verse 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunderpeals, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. And pay attention to this in verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then in verse 9 it says, And the angel said to me, Write this. This is one of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me read that again. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe, is what Jesus is referring to. This great kingdom banquet in Luke chapter 14. And basically what he's saying is everyone is invited, but not everybody accepts the invitation. You are invited. How will you respond to the invitation? Let's stand and continue to sing. Let the weak say I am strong.